Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. I really enjoyed getting to know Laura through this interview. I could immediately tell that she's someone I would love to have a cup of tea with, like on the regular. I'll bet she makes a really good cup of tea too. In this episode, you'll hear stories about white pine as well as the beautiful ways Laura has developed a relationship with this tree over time. As Laura points out, she isn't a clinical herbalist, and this episode isn't about giving you lists of ways that white pine can be prescribed as medicine. Instead, it's a lot deeper than that, and in my opinion, it's what herbalism is ultimately about. I also really like Laura's parting thoughts about finding your way as an herbalist and her wisdom about failure, so don't miss those. For those of you who don't know her already, Laura Gilmore is a forager, herbalist, and business owner living near Dwight, Ontario, Canada. Laura has a passion for herbalism, naturalist studies, homesteading, and ancestral living skills that connect us to our food and the land in the most human of ways. Laura runs Wild Muskoka Botanicals, which provides artisan wild foods and cocktail products. It exists to reconnect people with the natural world and to promote wellness and fun by incorporating wild plants back into people's modern lives. She also teaches foraging and herbal medicine classes in the Muskoka area from an animist and relationship-based perspective. Well, welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you because I don't really know you. And you are highly recommended to me to be on the show. And so, of course, I bet everybody that comes on the show. And I looked at your website. I looked at your fabulous products. I looked at your about story. And I just felt like we obviously don't know each other. But I felt like a very kindred spirit with you and that we have so much in common. And yeah, I'm excited to hear really about your herbal path. And also, I love that it's so much tied into ecosystems and ecology work. And so, yeah, I want to, I want to hear it all. Hmm. Yeah, I feel really blessed in that when I was young, I was very much a free range child. So when I was really young, I lived in Southern Ontario, which is the most Southern part of Canada for the American listeners, kind of near Buffalo, New York on the other side of the border. And it was a farming area. My family were early settlers in that area. So I had a lot of family down concession roads, farms that I was part of. And my neighbor was Italian from Italy. And I spent my childhood just like hanging out in gardens with incredible gardeners, hanging out in farms and barns and a lot of free time in nature. And then partway through my childhood, we actually moved several hours north to the region that I live now in Muskoka. 
and that kind of like free range wild childhood still continued on. And I spent a ton of time in the deep woods and I got into backcountry canoeing and camping. And so I've always been much more interested in nature and plants in particular than I ever was. Especially I think about, I would get in trouble in baseball because I would be that kid picking dandelions in the outfield <laughs> instead of catching the baseball. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. Yeah. That'd be like a great tagline, like introducing yourself. Yeah. Like, I'm the one looking at I'm dandelions that. instead of catching the baseball. It says a yeah. lot. Yeah. 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 I was that kid. And always really comfortable spending a lot of time alone in the forest. It was like a really place of comfort. So I studied ecology in post-secondary. And one of particularly like wetland ecology soils, kind of like a really nerdy plant-based kind of science. And I would always ask my professors these questions about human relationships with plants. And I always found that, you know, from that scientific perspective, they didn't necessarily, they would talk about the natives would use it for something. But I had never met, even though food came from the land, I had never really gotten medicine introduced to the land to me in such a clear way. Um, and then while I was in school, I was actually introduced to permaculture, the concept of permaculture, which is permanent agriculture. It's a design methodology for sustainable living. And that piqued my interest like nothing else. So after I got a program called Woofing, which is Living Workers on Organic Farms. And I found you got back, I feel like I'm dating myself a bit, but back in the day, you'd get this book in the mail and it would have all of these listings of you know, farms and homesteads all over North America or the world that you could travel to and you could put your time in, you know, working on people's properties for room and board. And I spent a bunch of time in British Columbia, in Washington, in California. And I basically would find these incredible backwoods homesteaders that had these incredible permaculture properties. And at the same time, meeting these incredible homesteaders, permacultures, met my first herbalists. Hmm. And so got introduced, you know, it was very much through like this very hands-on folk tradition being introduced to nettle and being taught how to make sad, being taught how to make teas and working with the plants that I knew so well, but in a totally different way, just, hmm. you know, was so magical. And then I I also, one of those summers, went to my first herb conference, Northwest Herb Fair, because David Holmgren, who is a permaculture teacher, was was speaking at this herb fair. And I went to the herb fair and I was like, these are my people. Mm -hmm. I've met my people. And so since then, very much have, have found a number of herbalists to learn from, did like many people did Rosemary Gladstar's home study program, been to dozens of herb conferences, started an herb conference, do do lots of online classes where I can, because I live in a, a rural area. So it's nice. Online education is amazing for access. And at the same time, I moved back to Ontario to my home community, got a job in ecology and, and worked for quite a number of years during ecological surveys. So my job was to do plant inventories and then map the ecosystems, the plant communities, but the work was primarily for development. It was my job to go into areas and basically do what's called an existing conditions report, which was mapping what was there before it was going to be, be changed. Mm -hmm. And we did really good work in a number of ways in terms of identifying 
the most important habitats and did lots of species at risk work. But I'm very much a free spirited person and nine to five doesn't really suit me that well. I hear you. Mm-hmm. Yep. After a, a number of years of like working in my field and, you know, being able to leveraging that to get get a homestead and start working on that, I really had this desire to want to do something different. And I wanted mm-hmm. to work with plants. And I really, you know, in all my years of working as an ecologist, I was always foraging. I'd be out in the field mm-hmm. and I'd be foraging and making things and bringing things to potlucks and, you know, sharing, you know, things I had made with people and people would ask to buy it. And I'd be like, oh no, this is just something I do for fun. I also, my my husband, as I was on the permaculture path, my partner was on the ancestral skills path. And so, you know, we mm-hmm. he went to Tom Brown Tracker School and started going down to wilderness awareness school and and really pushing and bringing into our life the passion of working with ancestral skills. So alongside learning plants and ecology, you know, we're we're out foraging, we're out making baskets and we're I'm fine, you know, making spools of cordage and I'm working, finding all these different ways that I can build my relationship with plants beyond this food or beyond medicine, and especially beyond the way that I was working with them as an ecologist. So all of these things were kind of coming together and people were asking me to do plant walks at their ancestral skills, you know, schools and wanted to buy my products. And so I took a big leap and I left my full-time permanent career, which is definitely a, a big risk. And I took a bit of time off to decide how I wanted to build a career working with plants. I'm an herbalist in in the sense that I work with plants, but I'm not a clinical herbalist. I don't have a practice where I work one-on-one with clients to help them with their particular health issues. That's, That's not the element of herbalism that I felt really made sense for me. And so I remember actually wanting to start a job like wanting to create my own business and feeling a little lost because I was like, well, what does it mean to be an herbalist if you don't run a clinic? Like what, how, how can I be an herbalist and still like, I want to work with these plants. I love making extracts. I love the apothecary side of things. And then where I am in Canada, I also was like, well, it also didn't make sense, you know, with, with herbs being so regulated. I was like, well, I don't know that I want to like sell, you know, medicines in following all of the regulations of the country. So what does that look like? And what I really sunk into was realizing that working with plants is food and then using the techniques that I had learned as an herbalist about how to extract things, but then approaching, bringing those extracts forward as, you know, really fun culinary and drink products was like a way to introduce in some ways herbal medicine to people, but through culinary and through drinks and and fun. And so that's really been how, that was where my business, Wild Muskoka Botanicals, came from. So I have a line of 22 products. I do infused vinegars and spice mixes and drink bitters and syrups and all different things using er, the, the techniques that I learned in my herb courses, but bringing them forward as culinary and as just really fun drink products. And it's like such mm-hmm. a sneaky way to get herbal medicine like into people. They don't think they're taking medicine. They just think they're making like a really good salad dressing or like a really fun cocktail or mocktail. So yeah, so that's 
kind of how I come to the work that I'm doing now. So yeah, I'm here in my my commercial production kitchen in our community of Dwight, Ontario. And it's where we make our products. And then I do foraging walks and mushroom programs. And yeah, just really, it's all just sneaky ways to get people to connect with the land. That's, hmm. that's my goal. Yeah, I like the sneaky aspect. Mm. I'm actually working on a podcast right now, which will have been published by the time this one's out about how to win over herbal skeptics in your life. And one of those mm-hmm. ways is to, it could be too much to approach people about using herbs for medicine, but herbs for cocktails and mocktails, that can be a tasty, delicious way to get it in. And if people are having delicious um, health enhancing herbs in their lives, great. We don't have to call it medicine. We can call it a fun drink. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at some of your offerings. The strawberry sumac shrub caught my eye. I'm really into mm-hmm. shrubs and vinegar based drinks. So yeah, there were so many delightful things. I love it. I also just, this is totally just for me personally, curious about when your husband was at Waz because at Wilderness Awareness School, because that my husband was also at Wilderness Awareness School. And that's actually kind of how we met. So Okay. Probably around 2000, the summer of 2004 or five. I bet they know each other. Oh, maybe. I'm I'm gonna ask. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I will stop my personal questioning (laughs) so that we can jump into white pine. And I'm excited to hear from you about white pine. I feel like this plant has such tree plant herb. We're just give them all the names. Has such a presence, and people love white pine so much. It's not a tree that I know. It doesn't grow here. I'm looking at a ponderosa pine tree right now. So we we do have pines. I live in a pine forest, but not white pine. So I'm excited to hear from you about white pine and and your relationship with this beautiful tree. Yeah, it feels like a really important one to talk about for my region. So I'm in central Ontario in the Great Lakes region and white pine is native to our area and it is a tree that can grow up to 150 feet tall can live up to 200 to 450 years it's a super canopy tree so what that means is that they will grow above the canopy line and so they're incredibly distinctive so the region that i'm in i'm on the canadian shield and so this is cottage country so it's a beautiful landscape of forests and lakes and open rocky areas And we're really known for, you know, people come here cottaging and canoe tripping. And, you know, there's all this art that is famous for this area. And I feel like in every depiction of our region, it's characterized by white pine. White pine grow really tall. And they're, they, to me, are this like balance between strength and softness because they can go so, so tall and have branches that grow so wide, but their needles, their leaves are born bundles. That's what makes them pine, but they're incredibly soft and delicate, especially compared to say your ponderosa pine or a lot of other pines. That's one of the things that makes white pine distinct is that the needles are incredibly soft and they're born bundles of five instead of two or three, which is much more common in in other pinus species. Everyone that I think lives in has, or has lived for a period of time in regions of white pine We'll talk about the impact of that tree, especially if you're a plant person. If you're a plant person and you live in a region with white pine, people will have this distinct relationship with it, and and myself included. And I've been thinking over the last number of years a lot about, you know, just 
our relationship with pine, humans' relationship with pine. Because as I started, you know, plants that I work with really closely, I, I really like to look into the history of them. And there's very interesting history about white pine in our region. So going back, you know, a thousand years ago, the peacemaker in Hiawatha uprooted a white pine tree and 50 you know, warriors and chiefs threw their weapons of war in underneath the roots of this white pine tree. And then the tree was uplifted again. That is the how the Haudenosaunee Confederacy began. It was the weapons of war were placed under and the white pine became the great tree of peace. And the eagle became this incredibly important symbol of that Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And to this day, eagles nest in the canopies of white pine trees. So this like deeply important culturally significant tree to the Great Lakes people, to all Indigenous peoples of the Great Lakes. Over 500 years ago, when colonists came, logging became the most important industry in the North. And white pines specifically became the tree of choice because they grew tall and they grew straight. And they were the most important mast trees for the British fleet. And mm. so the deck planks and the masts of all of those British ships that basically fueled the colonization of North America was built on the bones of those trees to the point that in 1691, the King of England declared that every single white pine over 24 inches was deemed owned by the crown. That and it was actually there so and that law has never been taken away so as a canadian citizen we're part of confederacy the crown still legally owns every wow. white pine that even grows on the property that i steward like that law has never been in, taken away on hmm. um, the u.s side it was one of the disputes including so there was actually the pine tree riot of 1772 on the U.S. side and started in New Hampshire because it was one of the many reasons that the U.S. colonists were fighting against the British Royal. And, and kind of like it was the the Pine Tree Riot was the event that instigated the Boston Tea Party. Oh, I did not know that. And was one of the reasons that the American Revolution began was this wow. battle against what Americans didn't didn't want the English crown to come to always be trying to take what they felt was theirs. So now, again, I sit with that as someone who lives on this land and wants to be in right relation, recognizes the impact that colonization has had on this land and the impact that, to the effect that white pine trees used to grow from unbroken. They talk about that a red squirrel would have been able to run from canopy tree to canopy tree all the way across the Great Lakes region to the edge of the prairies. Hmm. And that's definitely not the case anymore because over logging of these trees, they're still here, the trees are here and they still mark our landscape, but we don't have those 450 year old, 150 foot tall white pine trees. The conditions have definitely been drastically changed. And so it's a tree that like, I, I look at this history of and in the little community that I live in, it is still the most dominant tree in my landscape it's still perceived abundant but i look at this history and it was one that i really wanted to work with and again starting a business here i am i'm like here i want to have a i want to harvest a plant potentially in a 
we'll say small commercial scale, how do I be in right relation with this mm-hmm. tree that has this incredibly long history? And I'm in a region that is, yeah, long history of logging that is now, I would say, we've shifted now to more of a, a tourism-based economy, but but logging is still very much a part of our region. And as an ecologist, you know, I look at this tree and how do I work with this plant in right relations? So when I started Wild Muskoka, again, the, the name of my region is in my business. So I really wanted white pine to be one of the species that I worked with, especially too, because I really love people take for granted. Like I think the, we use this term often, the wallow green. We've probably mm-hmm. heard that term before. Like when people first learn plants, everything is just a wall of green. And pine is definitely would be a big part of people's wall of green here. When I think of my customers and my students, almost everyone in our region could probably find a white pine near them. They probably take for granted it's the tree at the shoreline of their cottage or the tree that's along the driveway that they walk by their mailbox every day. And so the very thing that we take for granted, the things that we see every day, that again, we see every day, we, re- we forget the significance that they have. And I wanted to like think about simple ways through food to connect people to this incredible, you know, these species that grow around us. So, so I really wanted to work with pine and we're just for, for people that are, are, whenever this podcast comes out, it's January here in Canada. This is actually the time of year that I start to harvest pine. And so one of the ways, so this being a big super canopy tree with large soft branches and wood that is grows tall and straight, but isn't necessarily super strong. It this is a tree that is really prone to losing branches in winter storms. Hmm. So the primary way that I work with pine is by harvesting storm damaged trees. So whether the trees that come down or just the branches that fall into the snow, that's how I get most of the pine that I work with for the year. And there are other times, you know, when we're harvesting for baskets or I'll harvest, you know, not the branches themselves, but the pollen cones. Like I I work with it through the year, but that first products, the first products that I started working with, it was really powerful to approach a tree and be like, I want to work with you, but what's the way to work with you? And then it was spending time with them and finding all these branches on the ground and asking, what can I do with these branches on the ground? And then coming up, realizing I could dry them and make these spice mixes and infuse vinegars. And that was, it was really powerful to like ask the tree how to work with it and then to, to, to work with it in that way. Hmm. What you've just shared is so important on so many levels, Laura. And I love that it can be applied to white pine, but to every single plant out there. And I I love that you're asking this very heart-centered question of how can I be in right relation with this tree and with your area and your landscape, which I feel like is the most important question that we can ask ourselves before any other question is that introspection. And I love that you shared the history of this tree, not only because I found it fascinating, but I think that's a really great modeling of you know, how can I be in right relation? Well, it starts with getting to know that tree or that plant, you know, it's instead of, I mean, honestly, when I first started learning about herbs, I was so excited. I still am every day. My question when I first started was like, what is that good for? 
right? That was my first question. And I'm so grateful that that question evolved. You know, it was the question I had back then. I'm not going to like shame myself for having it. I was excited. And it was the question that was kind of modeled for me, right? What is that good for? And I found it so fascinating. Like, oh, it's good for that? Cool. But I'm so glad that things have evolved that now the question is more you know, how can I be in right relation? How can I get to know this plant? How can I listen to the plant? And yeah, you just modeled all of that so beautifully. And I think what comes out of that is so much cooler. Like I get a sense of your relationship with white pine on so many different levels, your reverence for the plant, your love for the plant tree. Again, we're kind of loosey goosey with how <laughs> we refer to our herbs, but yeah, I just love all of that because ultimately you could come on here and I could be like, Hey, Laura, what's white pine good for? And you could like tell me five things like it's an expectorant herb. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, like whatever. It's high in vitamin C. Oh, cool. But the result of that like very limited superficial list knowledge is not nearly as cool as understanding relationship, understanding ecology, understanding listening to the plant. And also, and then ultimately that relationship we have is I don't know. I feel like that's what can change the world personally, because when we live in this era of time where, I don't know, it's easy to be disenfranchised or disassociated from the world around us. For me personally, having that connection restored has been the most beautiful moments of my life. So anyway, thank you for all of that. I just really, hmm. I love it all. I So you mentioned like recipes and helping connect people mm. to this beautiful tree through recipes. And you've graciously shared a recipe with us, white pine and rosemary roasting salt. And mm. I'd love to hear more about that. That's my best selling spice. I'm giving giving away my recipes. I, wow. I don't gatekeep. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. So I have a number of spice mixes and that was actually the first spice mix that I came up with. Again, it was a wanting to introduce people to pine in like a really simple, fun way. But I kept thinking about how most people, if I said, you know, I'm going to season your food with pine, I think people have this strong association with like pine salt. They think it's going to taste <laughs> like that's right. what they think pine is going to taste and smell like. And I will say, so because a number of your listeners aren't going to have access to white pine, all of the pinus species are all non-toxic and they have edible medicinal properties. So feel free to play around and interchange with whatever pine species you have local to you. But just know that they all have different culinary nuances. So white pine in my region, I find to be the most culinarily compatible because we do have red pine and Scots pine, some that might be more similar to like the ponderosa pine that you have growing there. So white pine is what I work because I find it's the most delicate in flavor. You kind of can't overpower. You might want to reduce the amount of pine you use depending on. Good tip. Yeah, depending on the culinary, how strong your local pine is. So when I thought about wanting to introduce pine on a cult, like as a spice, I was like, people are not going to know what to do with pine if I just give them some pine needles. The other thing is, Pine and rosemary to me have very similar properties in the sense that they're both aromatic, woody plants, that their flavors are best by heat, by cooking with. Mm -hmm. Find rosemary is not the kind of plant that you chop up and sprinkle on fresh. You don't tend to use it the way you would use like cilantro or parsley. Mm -hmm. It's something that we tend to use when we're actually baking or roasting foods. 
because those aromatic oils tend to change and they will impart themselves into the food. And so I was thinking about the characteristics of pine and how it could best be shared. And I'm like, well, you want to treat it like rosemary. And then I was like, well, what if I pair it with rosemary? Mm. And I, I always tell people, I think about my building relationships with plants, like building relationships with people. And when you go on a plant walk and, you know, someone that, you know, you know, and you like, or if a friend of yours who's an herbalist introduces you to a plant, you're, it's kind of like being introduced to someone new at a party. Like you're going to be more likely to like be interested to get to know someone if someone that you know and love and trust and you think has good taste introduces you to someone. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to use rosemary to like introduce pine mm. to the to the the chicken roasted veggies because people understand how to work with rosemary on a culinary perspective. And so I'm like, okay, well, if the, people know how to work with rosemary, it's going to teach them how to work with pine. And so that's why I put the two of them together. Um, they taste delicious together. That's, I mean, hands down, they they work well. But it's the reason I put them together was because I thought, okay, well, rosemary will will help people understand. It's not the kind of thing you sprinkle on a dish at the end. It's something that, like, I always use that spice mix if I'm, say, like last night, I, I cut up a bunch of potatoes from our garden and just drizzled olive oil, used that spice mix, threw it in the oven comes out perfect every single time you know I'll even use that that spice mix in my bone broths and stuff because again mm. the cook the slow cooking over time um just like we 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 know how to work with rosemary so mm -hmm. yeah you just have to get the ratios right because rosemary is a much more powerful herb so in the recipe that I gave to folks it was like four parts pine to one part rosemary mm -hmm. and so you might just play with that depending on the pine that's in your area hmm it's really interesting to hear about your process, Laura. You strike me as a very full and intentional person. Like you really think about your relationship to the plant. You really thought about the gifts of the pine boughs in the winter. You really thought about how to introduce pine to people through this culinary delight. So mm. yeah, I really appreciate that thoughtfulness and intention mm. behind that. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about pine? Hmm. I mean, I've been talking, so, you know, I work with the needles, but just to say pine has something to offer almost every time of year, you know, and it's something, it's a really beautiful plant because again, it's accessible. What I like about some of the conifer trees is the accessibility of them, you know, not just pine, but conifer trees in general, you can find them whether you're in the forest or in urban areas. And if you build relationships with like arborists or you watch for, you know, near hydro lines, like there's so many harvesting opportunities where sometimes when people are first getting interested in plants, they, you know, want to start foraging, but they're like, how do I do it sustainably? Or like, where's a good place to get it? And it's like, man, there's so many trees, like conifer trees grow and pine trees grow so abundantly. And sometimes like, yeah, they have to be trimmed back from power lines or driveways or near houses and stuff. So take advantage of and use that tree as like an opportunity to to get you know your hands working with plants in a very sustainable way and there's something you can harvest from pine every day of the year which is incredible so whether it's the needles we make baskets from the bark in the summertime in june we harvest a pine pollen which in my region most people curse the pine pollen i don't know if the ponderosa does the same where it like Yes, I, I see it. Does. And I have really been, I make a, an effort to like 
thank the trees when everyone else is cursing the trees because here like people's cars will be covered the lakes will be covered and everyone talks about like all oh, that gross yellow scum and i always make an effort to thank the trees and tell people wow isn't that incredible that you have this nutrient dense superfood that is you know that we can harvest as you know and i i've harvested it before in many different ways and I use it in my smoothies and, you know, I bake with it a little bit, but I think about the fact that here you have this superfood that coats the landscape at the time of year that all the other plants are trying to grow. The June, for us, it's in June, right at that most vital time of year of vitality and fecundity and growth. And I think about when it coats the water and all of the, like, all of the young fish that are just, you know, fries at the time or the amphibians that have their tadpoles and again, all that like aquatic plant life that is just like bursting. And then here, these trees basically gave the most incredible fertilizer dose across the landscape. And just trying to, as much as I know allergies are, are hard on people, reminding people of how blessed we are to actually have that fecundity in our mm -hmm. landscape. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that reminder so much because it really is that you can just imagine the land rejoicing, you know, yeah. with from, as you said, all those amphibians and all just all of the tiny creatures and the plants and who knows, maybe the mycelium get into this, but it's an entire landscape that's rejoicing of these nutrients. Yeah. And again, not just for us, like, again, they're incredible nutrients for us. If, if I highly recommend everyone, you know, to, to try to harvest pine pollen, if you are in a region with lots of it, at least once just to, to experience it. But then, yeah, you'll have a different appreciation for it in the landscape. How do you go about harvesting that? Yeah, I've done it. I've done it so many ways for, again, as, as having been around the ancestral skills community for a long time, I feel like they're they love pine pollen and I, i've gone from like we put tarps out we were like trying to scrape it off tarps we stricken it into bags the method that i now do is i actually harvest the pine pollen like the cones, mm -hmm. cones. they are yellow but not dropping the pollen yet so they're still wet when you squish them they will you can see the yellow powder but they're not open and so what i do is i harvest them at that stage and then I bring them in and I have large like metal chafing dishes or, or baking trays. And I just lay them out on a single layer. And then what will happen is they'll open. And then you can very carefully, when you're indoors, no fans on, you can just carefully with a mask on, you know, especially if you're someone, I don't recommend doing this if you have pine pollen allergies, maybe someone who Good loves tip. you will <laughs> do it for you. But then you can just really care. Once they open, you see the pine pollen dropping. And then I just run it through a sift and it gets the, after years of doing it every way I could think of, this is probably the best way to do. It. And yeah, you don't get covered in pollen. There's not as many bugs in it and you get the most pollen. And then I just put it in jars and yeah, so you sift it. So then you're getting, you kind of keep the that just that starchy, starchy husk separate from the pure pollen. And then I just freeze it. <laughs> I've done, I've also taken the, the, those cones and I actually just soak them in honey. And then Ooh. just like the honey will just t mix with the pollen. And then I can just like eat the honey and chew, like make tea even like with the honey and even just some of the unsifted cones. That's really lovely. That was like my cheater way. Yeah. 
Well, I really love that tip. That tip is new to me. So I'm definitely mm -hmm. taking notes over here. Yeah, I've done the um, paper bag shake method where you put the paper bag over the... You'll get so much more if you mm. harvest them before. And it's a lot, it is a lot easier in a respiratory system. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I was like, Arthur, Arthur, I'll credit Arthur Haynes. I learned that one from Arthur Haynes. Mm. A, Thank you, a, Arthur. Forager and maniac. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Well, I'm excited to hear what you have going on in your world, Laura. Do you have classes? Do you have, I don't know, products you'd like to further entice us with? Oh, and a question about the products. Do you ship only in Canada? Do you ship other places? People might oh, want to know. I, yeah, no, I ship. I ship into the U.S. I've shipped just this last fall. Yeah, I was shipping as far from Northwest Territories to Florida. So, Ooh, yeah. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm in a region called Northern Ontario. And so I actually got an innovations grant last year to develop new products using non-timber forest products from Northern Ontario. So that was actually cool. pretty cool. So it was it's a, it was for an organization that's about likes to inspire if you're doing something that is unique to your region. So yeah, so I I've actually been developing some new bitters, Ooh. really fun bitters. I'm doing like a, a wild cherry and rose and a mushroom chocolate cacao and Ooh. a really wonderful aromatic bitters using, you know, northern plants and, and su su working with sumac. So, yeah, so new bitters are coming out this year. And so I'm excited to get those finalized. And yeah, Lovely. the spring. Mm -hmm, yeah, I'll be starting up with classes again this spring. My favorite programs are definitely my longer term programs. It's so lovely to get together with people through the whole growing season. So I do one that's called Wild Medicine. It's more of like a foraging herbal medicine kind of foundations program. And then I started just last year, I started one called Fungi is Kin, which is a, a mushroom focused program. I basically am trying to teach mushrooms the way that herbalists teach herbs you know oh, cool real relationship based focused and we make like mushroom extracts and but yeah just really approaching the fungal kingdom the way that i feel like it was role modeled to me with herbs like that real relationship based oh cool that's it's been awesome. really yeah it's been really fun cool wonderful and will you share your website with us for people who are like all right i want to check out the classes the products yeah. Yeah. So our website is wildmuskoka.com. I'm sure in the show notes or in the tagline, we can, it'll be there. That spelling of Muskoka or find us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, just at wild Muskoka. Cool. Well, we're at the end of the show, which means we're at the last mm -hmm. question. And that question for you is what do you wish you would have known when you were first starting out with herbs? Yeah. It kind of speaks, I think, Back to in my intro when I had said that when I first left my career and I wanted to work with plants and I hit a wall when I thought that being an herbalist meant I had to work as a, in, as a clinical herbalist mm -hmm. so that there are so many ways to work with plants and it doesn't have to look any one way. Mm -hmm. And I almost recommend it's like when I whenever I get really stuck on something, I ask like, how would nature approach this? Like, what, how would nature answer this question? And when I really thought it through as an ecologist, I thought, well, nature would find an unoccupied niche. Where is there an unoccupied niche in the ecosystem that instead of trying to do what other people are doing, how do you, for one, find something that's creative or end at the same time, fill a community need? 
And so if you're really, if you're trying to figure out, you know, you love plants, you want to work with them, maybe you look around and like, for me, it was, I saw people herbalists with their clinical practices and thought, you know, or at the farmer's market, just selling like tinctures and salves. And I was like, well, it doesn't quite fit for me. And I hadn't seen anything else really role modeled. And so that's why I just tell people like, find, sit with, where do you think that there is something maybe you're interested in that someone else isn't doing or what is your community need? you know what are the people around you how can you be of how can you be in service whether it's to the human community or our more than human kin mm-hmm. oh that's beautiful laura and again like really your thoughtfulness and introspection shines through with that it's really a gift and there's something that popped out at me on your story on your website, and I'm just going to quote you here. It says, it's third person, but her herbal education came both from incredible herbalist mentors and the wealth of knowledge to be found in books and through online courses with lots of experimenting, some grand successes and learning opportunities in her failures. And I love that end there. And I'm wondering, because you're a thoughtful person, like, I think it's so good when we like recognize how much failure, how much learning experiences goes into herbalism and how that is an incredible learning experience. And I don't know, I'm just curious about like your thoughts on that. Like how has challenges or failures helped you grow as an herbalist? Yeah, not just as an herbalist, as a homesteader, as an ancestral skills yeah. practitioner. Sometimes like as a teacher, I've been challenged and someone will say, oh, I tried that once and it didn't work out. You're like, oh, no, you just, you're just getting your toes wet. Like you, mm. I think to, sometimes I think, especially nowadays with the amount of information and the amount of, with social media and all things, what we're seeing, what people are choosing to put forward online are, you know, it's the 50th time on their phone that they deleted the video or they're waiting to make a video. They're waiting to share something until they're good at it. And so I think we admit, we don't get to really see that process. And so, mm-hmm. so important to me is, is you should go into a new skill expecting to fail mm-hmm. for a good number of times, you know, with herbalism, I think of the number of things that I made and I had to dump out. Or especially as an herbalist, like I tell my students all the time, you know, start small, start with small amounts of tinctures, start with small amount of herbs that you harvest. Don't over harvest things because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to harvest herbs and they're not going to dry properly and they're going to mold in the jar. You're going to make a tincture and it's not going to work out. You're going to make syrups. They're going to go moldy. So start, start small so that at least your mistakes are small because you're going to make them regardless. Hmm. And so you know, like uh, there's so many things to learn on the herbal journey. You can get given all the information in the world. You know, you can be told, but until you make those mistakes, until you've had that really, you know, and you harvested these flowers under the moon at the certain time and you thought you dried them properly, but you didn't know what dry was until they molded. You can be given all the information. The best lessons are from the mistakes that you make Mm -hmm. and so be so thankful to the plants for those lessons Mm -hmm. and also then it's that lesson around don't over harvest you know when you're when you're new start small i think people get excited and then they like want to do big jars of things or they're like okay you're gonna make mistakes so at least have them be small mistakes (laughs) and then and then grow from there Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I love the remake, the reframe of just like mistakes are inevitable. This is gonna happen to you. Because yeah. I think just for whatever cultural reasons, we have a lot of people have a different perspective of like, oh, I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to move forward because I'm afraid of the mistakes. But yeah, inevitable. And I'm so with you on the small batch thing. That's I did a podcast once on my biggest herbal mistakes. And that is one of my biggest herbal mistakes in the beginning is going too big, too fast and yeah. heartbreaking. Oh my gosh, to be a part of that waste. Because the problem was not waking the mistake as you're putting forth. The problem was doing too big of a batch or whatever. So yeah, better to make them small. Anyway, I love so much of all that you shared, Laura. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much and I've really enjoyed getting to know you too. Thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've really, I've learned so much from you, Rosalie. Like I've been following oh. your work for years and I, it has helped me grow as an herbalist and you're everything that you share is so approachable and practical and really has put things you're you're definitely always on near the top on my resource lists when I'm sharing students, beginner students is like someone who's so clear and thoughtful as well oh, in the way they present you. herbal information. I'm <laughs> blushing. <laughs> thank you so much, Laura. I look forward to being with you again. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Rosalie. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your beautifully illustrated recipe card and to get a transcript of this show. There you'll also be able to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch with me. The best way to check out Laura's offerings is at www.wildmuskoka.com. If you'd like more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I'd also love to hear your comments about this episode. What are your biggest takeaways? Okay, you've lasted to the very end of the show, which means you get a gold star and this herbal tidbit. So as I mentioned, I didn't know, still don't know, white pine personally. So I was at a bit of a loss for this herbal tidbit. I did go on to PubMed and do a search to find if there was any interesting studies regarding white pine as medicine, but I didn't find any. So then I thought, well, I'll look for some poetry. Maybe I can find a great poem about a white pine. And through doing that, I found that my favorite poet, Mary Oliver, has an entire book that's entitled White Pine. I didn't know that. That book is now on order. But in the meantime, I found this beautiful poem by her, which mentions white pine. The sun rises late in this southern country, and since the first thing I do when I wake up is to go out into the world, I walk here along a dark road. There are many trees, also shrubs and vines, sumac, the ivies, honeysuckle. I walk between two green and leafy walls. Occasionally, a rabbit leaps across the road or a band of deer tossing their heads and bounding great distances. Maybe some of them leap from the earth altogether. Couldn't there be pastures beside the lakes of the stars? Isn't everything in the dark too wonderful to be exact and circumscribed? For instance, the white pine that stands by the lake, tall and dense, it's a whistling crest on windy mornings. Otherwise, it's silent. It looks over the lake and it looks up the road. I don't mean it has eyes. It has long bunches of needles, five to each bundle. From its crown springs a fragrance. The air is sharp with it. Everything is in it, but no single part can be separated from another. I have read that in Africa, when the body of an antelope 
which all its life ate only leaves and grass and drank nothing but wild water, is first opened, the fragrance is almost too sweet, too delicate, too beautiful to be born. It is a moment which hunters must pass through carefully with concentrated and even religious attention if they are to reach the other side and go on with their individual lives. And now I have finished my walk and I am just standing quietly in the darkness under the tree.